0: honor and a privilege to be here on this morning. I'm Reverend Charles L. King, Jr., and I greet you in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. What a blessed privilege and an honor and a joy it is for us to be able to come and to gather and to worship uh, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, in spirit and in truth. We are thankful to your pastor, Pastor Smith, who invited us to come and to participate in this sharing and presentation of the kaleidoscope of the gospel in black and white, amen. A Portion of our congregation is here from the First Baptist Church of West College Hill and it's amazing that our church is just located just down Hamilton and down, a little bit down North Bend Road and for some of us this may be the first time that we've ever even come together and gotten, to get, gotten together, but we do it all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ, amen. Certainly, keeping within the parameters of how we've set our worship, I dare not tarry for too much longer. Pastor Smith is letting me know. Said now, Pastor, we are Presbyterian. You're Baptist. Get with it. I said, Amen. So this morning we're going to come from the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, as you see there on your screen, chapter five and. In the essence of time, I would not go through all of those verses, but but this morning 's message, while we talk about unity in diversity, I actually want to say the subject in it with an emphasis, and I actually want to call it the miracle of unity in diversity, beginning with Pentecost, the Christian Church had dismantled the barriers of gender, race, social class, and had marked And all those things that marked and separated Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi, had given thanks daily that he wasn't born a woman, a slave, a Gentile. But even he marveled in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, on how they had all come together. While in those verses he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As I listened to Pastor Smith talk about his friend, his pastor friend, I, I recall an article that I read in the Christianity Today, the November 2008 uh, issue, and, and I began to read a, uh, about an article, and the subject was denominational diagnostics. And that story jumped out at me, for in that story, there was an Indian pastor who had told the story. And he said this, he says, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. I said, hmm, he says, but in my area, only Christians strive. And then in Italis I saw, he says, however, inefficiently sometimes, or sometimes to a fault, but only Christians strive to mix men and women of different caste, race, and social groups. In the article he said, that's the real miracle. It'll take a minute for that to sink in. <laughs> because what he was saying is this, from his perspective, of course, Hindu and, and Muslim, they don't really put a whole lot of emphasis on equality. There's not a whole lot of talk about rights. No, they deal in rigidity, they deal in rank, and they deal in regiment. But the fact of the matter is, is sometimes when people will argue with you and they'll try to minimize what God does, it's no different than someone who once wanted to argue with me over the miracle of when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt someone says, well, I read that, that archaeologically that it was impossible for Moses to part the Red Sea. For if you do your archaeological study, that the Red Sea technically could have only been six inches deep. So what is the real miracle in Moses parting the Red Sea when the children of Israel could have very easily walked across the water for it was only six inches? Well, here's what you do. Don't argue doctrine. Don't argue theology. I said, I tell you what, I'll give you your point if you give me mine. He says, what's your point? I says, well, if what you say is true, that technically the children of Israel only walked across six inches of water, then to me, God is still an awesome God because that means that he drowned Pharaoh and his whole army (laughs) with six inches of water. You can't tell me that my God isn't an awesome God. So I tell you what, maybe unity is miraculous, but here's the deal. Our challenge, our responsibility, is that which God has brought together. It is our responsibility to keep together and to maintain this miracle of unity and diversity. In the said text that we brought here, uh, we can all agree that, that no matter what, as beautiful as this is, as awesome as this is, there will be still be some that will probably stay away there will still be some, whether in your congregation or ours, who will decide that, you know what, that's just not for me. And they'll go ahead and visit that congregation that they probably visit more often than not on a Sunday morning. Instead of coming to the College Hill Presbyterian Church, they'll visit St. Mattress. You'll catch that one too. (laughs) They'll visit at St. Mattress and they'll fellowship and say amen to Pastor Pillow. And they'll give the right hand of fellowship to Sister Sheets. (laughs) Care what you do. Sometimes it's never good enough. And the devil will always try. If it's not one thing, it's another. And if it's not that, it's another. In an attempt to try and divide, conquer, and to keep the children of God separate and still talking about equal. Again, in our text, you'll find that that with all of the challenges that Nehemiah had to deal with, he had to deal with politics, he had to deal with administration, he had to deal with personal challenges. But if you ever want to find one of the greatest challenges facing the church, it's not out there. It's the problems that we face in the house. It's the stuff on the inside that sometimes seems to bring the church to her needs. In this text, you'll see that there were actually three groups that were referenced here. In verse 2, you'll find that they had the merchants and the laborers. If you would put that text up for me. They were the merchants and the laborers. The merchants and the laborers, they were large families. So in the process of what was going on, the rebuilding of the walls, they had been able to sustain themselves. But now they were without an income. They were no longer to support those who were dependent on them for their resources had now dried up. Sound familiar? Another group of farmers in verse 3. You would have seen verse 3 if you take the time to read it. Now, for the farmers, it was not uncommon for this group or class of people to expect a bumper crop. And what they would do is they would use their crop and actually leverage the crop to get loans for them to continue doing business. But what had happened is. Someone had come in. And stolen the crops. So they no longer have those same means. For earning a living. The third group. According to verse 4. Was simply a group. Who was having trouble. Paying the taxes. Now that sounds real. Common. For some. Maybe not you. But for some. But what I want to highlight for us on this occasion is the response by the leader, Nehemiah. And each of us have to see ourselves as leader within, leaders within the various groups and circles that we walk within. It's bigger than just a pastor. It's bigger than just a role of responsibility in the church, but in our homes, on our jobs, in our communities. First thing I want to show you in verse 6 is that he got angry. He got angry. I need to say this to somebody that there's actually nothing wrong with what is called righteous anger. See, we need to learn to be angry and to, be, and to hook up with the things that God gets angry about. I don't care how you put it, sin is still sin, right is right, and wrong is wrong. But what I want to also emphasize is this, that what Nehemiah did was he didn't get mad about his reputation. He didn't get angry even when other people were talking about him and putting him down. I wish I had time. But what he got angry about was how God's people were being hurt by each other. Second thing I want to show you is that in verse 7, after he got angry, after he saw what the problem was and after he began to, 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 to take this upon himself as to what to do, the second thing he did in verse 7 was he got alone. He got by himself. He gave himself some time to work through what to do and he consulted with God. Be careful allowing your feelings to lead you into action third thing I wanna show you in verses seven through nine is that he then confronted the offenders. But here's what he did. There's even steps in how we want to confront the things that might not be going right within our particular churches or congregations or whatever the situation is. The first thing he did was he showed them that what they were doing was wrong. The second step he did was he showed them that what they were doing was not just wrong, but it was wrong with and against God. The third thing he did was, was he showed them that what they were doing was hurting others. Sometimes we don't realize the fact that just because it makes you feel good to let it out and to tell somebody off, fact of the matter is, it can actually hurt somebody else Unless what you're trying to get angry about is that somebody is going against the will of God. Look what he did then in verse 11. After all of those things, after he confronted them, after he had prayed about what to do, he then gave them some time in verse 11. And when you find that in verse 11, when you read it, you're going to find these words. He said, you must restore their fields their vineyards, their olive groves, and homes to them this very day. And not only restore, but he said we have to pay them interest. In other words, sometimes it's not enough just to say I'm sorry. It might be that if something is broken, you might have to then go and replace it. Fourth, final thing I want to show you in verse 13 is the outcome. After we've identified things that are not right, after we've identified some things that don't feel right, after we've identified some things that we know is just simply against what God really wants us to do and who he wants us to be. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says that the people praise the Lord. As a matter of fact, you read in that text, it says the whole assembly responded, Amen. And then it says they praise the Lord. It said the whole assembly. Can we do that now? Can the whole assembly just simply say? And can we give God a hand clap of praise and let him know that he is a good God and he is worthy to be praised? Some key points I want you to ponder. If you're taking notes and you want to remember some things. Unfortunately, I don't care if it's College Hill, Presbyterian. I don't care if it's the First Baptist Church or West College Hill. I don't care if it's Big Baptist, Little Baptist, Big Presbyterian, Little Presbyterian. Sometimes it's not very long for a person to walk in desiring to, to seek faith and to seek Christ that it's not long before they find that there's a whole lot of dissension amongst the ranks. And while we're talking about the miracle of unity in diversity, here's the fact of the matter. Disunity distracts believers and it discourages seekers. I'll say it again. I'll say it again. Disunity distracts believers And it discourages seekers. If you find yourself, your ministry, your study group, your church, wait a minute, let me get personal, your home, your family in a state of disunity. The best prescription I can give you is not something philosophical, it's not something fancy, any words dripping with sugar. But all I can give you simply is the word of God. And the word of God said, Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 15 verse 7, he says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you that God will be given glory. Certainly, there will be differences of opinions in the church. Beneath the cross are issues of varying degrees of importance. But you and I must learn. We have to learn to be tolerant of the perspectives of others. But in the end, accepting one another As a brother and sister in Christ, that uncommon bond, that unity that is, the fact that whether we are black, white, Presbyterian, Baptist, we are all covered by the same blood. And the same grace that woke you up and that you feel good about woke your neighbor up. And regardless of how good you feel about your walk in Christ, the fact of the matter is, but for the grace of God, there go uh, accept each other. That word accept can I listen a couple more minutes. That word accept, if you really take the time to do your study, literally means to receive into one's heart. Believe it or not, it's the same principle that was used in John chapter 14 verse 2 when the Bible says that Jesus will accept or receive us into heaven. So when you want to talk about it, you want a glimpse of heaven? Let me give you a glimpse of heaven. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 and 10. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes. That is the miracle of the unity in diversity. To God be the glory and to God be the praise.